It might be said that there are two ways, two entrances into death. The first one is simply that we die. And this involves going through a process, the process of dying. But maybe it can be said that there's another entrance into death, which is to be killed. And here, rather than there being a sense of us entering into some kind of process, instead there's the sense of us becoming subject to the intention or action of someone or something other. Quite possibly, of course, both of these, dying and being killed, aren't mutually exclusive. It might even be said that they're possibly two perspectives on the same thing. Yet, maybe it can be helpful in everyday life to have some kind of awareness, some kind of familiarity with these two perspectives and the different dynamic that each of them presents to us because of the very real contrast between them. When we're dying, we're entering into a process that culminates in death. And the challenge here, perhaps, is finding ways that we can die as well and completely as we possibly can. However, if it's the case that we're in a process instead of being killed, then this is a death that's being imposed upon us in some sense. If we're being killed, then we may not yet be done with life. The question, the challenge in this instance, and it's this that we'll be exploring today, is then maybe having been killed, how can we come back to life? What is the best and most appropriate way to do that? And having been killed and found some kind of way to come back to life, what does our relationship to life look like then? In popular culture, in our cultural imagination, there are three ways of coming back from the dead that receive a lot of attention and are endlessly recycled in films, stories, fantasies and dreams. These are becoming a ghost, becoming a vampire or becoming a zombie. And maybe we don't have to look into these very far before it becomes apparent that despite them all being very popular as means of returning from the dead, nevertheless they 
all present some very serious drawbacks. Becoming a ghost is probably the least satisfactory means of returning from the dead. Because if in returning our aim is to come back to life, a ghost doesn't really achieve this. We don't think of ghosts as being alive. A ghost evokes the sense not so much of something that has come back to life, but something that has actually failed to die properly. And indeed, in classic ghost stories, what actually lies in store for a ghost, its destiny, is to be laid to rest, to properly join the dead and come into relationship with the dead, rather than to come into any kind of continued relationship with life. The lesson here, perhaps, is that if we find ourselves having been killed off in some sense, then the solution to that is not to become a ghost, not to attempt to hang on or return to the scenes of our lives, or to haunt like a ghost does. The first step, perhaps, in returning from the dead when we've been killed is to truly acknowledge that severance from life rather than merely to try to hold on to it in some respect and so end up in a kind of limbo state that isn't really life at all, just a, a semblance of it. Zombies and vampires, on the other hand, they have both genuinely achieved a means of coming back into the world of the living and being able to participate in it. But, unfortunately, in neither case can it be said that the living are going to be pleased to have them around. On having returned from the dead, the relationship that both vampires and zombies adopt with regard to life is a parasitic one. Vampires extract blood from the living and often zombies are envisaged as extracting brains. Whereas Vampires often tend to be quite fussy about who they transform into a vampire from the living. Zombies are totally indiscriminate and just set out to transform as many of the living as they possibly can into the walking dead. And therein lies the contrast between them. Whereas the vampire adopts a relationship towards life that might be described as aristocratic. The zombie's relationship to life seems in contrast to what might be described as way more working class. 
in the popular imagination, zombies move around in large crowds and hordes. Vampires, on the other hand, tend to keep more select company and keep themselves at a distance, maybe ensconcing themselves up in that old castle on the hill. In the original myth of the zombie, this was supposedly a corpse reanimated by a sorcerer for the purpose of mindlessly carrying out the sorcerer's bidding. A zombie returns to life from the dead as a slave, whereas a vampire returns to life ostensibly in the role of a master. But when we consider them side by side like this, the relationships they have adopted towards life are equally repugnant, equally pitiable. The vampire is utterly dependent upon a supply of blood from the living in order to maintain his or her so-called mastery. It's the case in everyday life and also in the life of the vampire after death that without the slave the master is nothing. Likewise, in the case of a zombie apocalypse, once everybody becomes a zombie, what then? On having returned from the dead, the relationship that both vampires and zombies adopt towards life is a destructive one, one that leads inexorably to their own undoing. Compared with ghosts, what vampires and zombies teach us about how to come back to life and return from the dead is perhaps something more mysterious. The lesson seems to be that if we've been killed off but we seek to return to life, then that entails adopting an attitude towards life which is neither that of master nor slave, neither allowing ourselves in this new life to be subjugated, nor yet ourselves seeking to dominate it. Power struggles may well have been a feature of that life which has been killed off, but the lesson seems to be that if we attempt to resume these after we've come back to life, then that will not serve us well, and it will in fact undo us. In the tarot, the card known as Judgment, or sometimes The Judgment, usually it depicts the resurrection of the dead. This of course is a symbol, an archetype, very specifically linked to Christianity. And so, tarot decks that might not want to align themselves with Christianity have had to find their own version or variations upon this imagery. The Judgment is, maybe, the card in the tarot that's the most difficult to unhook 
from Christian iconography. In the Marseille deck, the angel of the resurrection appears in the sky and is playing on a trumpet on the earth beneath. A woman and an old man are looking on in amazement as a third figure with their back to us, possibly a female adolescent, is standing, apparently rising up from an open tomb. Maybe the suggestion here is that the woman and the old man are the parents of this younger person brought back from the dead by the angel of resurrection, and they're looking on in wonder and gratitude. Rather than the more limited drama depicted here between just three human beings, other decks, such as the Rider Waite deck, present a wider, more general portrayal of the resurrection, with lots of dead people rising up from the earth and from the sea and raising their arms in gratitude and adoration to the angel of the resurrection calling them forth. If we were dead, if we had been killed, what would it mean to hear a trumpet and to have been brought back to life by that sound? What would have happened inside us? And what would the sound of that instrument have done to us or presented us with such that life comes flooding back into us and we feel impelled to rise to our feet again? What is this apparent connection between being brought back to life and musical sound? Beethoven's String Quartet number 15 in A minor, opus 132, was written in 1825. He wrote the third movement, which is the longest part, after recovering from a serious illness which it had seemed to him at the time could possibly be fatal. He entitled that third movement with the words, Holy Song of Thanksgiving of a Convalescent to the Deity in the Lydian Mode. What it seems that Beethoven might have been expressing in this piece of music is perhaps the feeling of having been resigned to death and yet finding oneself granted with a new lease of life. This is how Aldous Huxley describes that third movement in his novel Point Counterpoint. Slowly, slowly, writes Huxley, the melody unfolded itself. It was an unimpassioned music, transparent, pure and crystalline, like a tropical sea, an alpine lake, water on water, calm sliding over calm, the according of level horizons and waveless expanses, 
a counterpoint of serenities. And everything clear and bright, no mists, no vague twilights. It was the calm of still and rapturous contemplation, not of drowsiness or sleep. It was the serenity of a convalescent who wakes from fever and finds himself born again into a realm of beauty. But the fever was the fever called living, and the rebirth was not into this world. The beauty was unearthly, convalescent serenity was the peace of God, the interweaving of Lydian melodies was heaven. Could it be then, in that third movement of Beethoven's String Quartet number 15, we have an example of music that captures that feeling of coming back to life. And according to Aldous Huxley, the music that brings us back to life has certain characteristics. It's transparent, it's calm, it's crystalline. Maybe we can think back to times in our own lives when we've been in convalescence. The fever passes or the pain starts to abate and suddenly we're left in this clear, quiet place where we think, oh, it seems life is going to continue. What now? This can be a state in which it's easier than it usually is for us to see what's important, for us to have a strong sense of what we really ought to be getting on with. This archetype that we're talking about, this image, it depicts the resurrection of the dead, but it's called the judgment. And maybe now we've arrived at a fuller sense of how it is that after having been killed off, but having been called back to life, it's at this point that we can really weigh in the balance what is and what isn't important in our lives and decide what we will and what we won't be doing from this point forwards. What we hear then in that trumpet blast in that music that calls us back to life is the clear and concentrated essence of what it is that we know that we should be doing. The things we know we ought to be getting on with above all else. What else could it possibly be that draws us back into life? But perhaps there are challenges and dangers in this moment as well. Huxley says that in this music there's no mists, no vague twilights, it's not drowsiness or sleep. But suppose for some reason we weren't able to tune into that crystalline clarity of the trumpet call. Could there be a danger then of hanging on to things from our previous way of living or else getting embroiled in conflicts or power struggles where previously we found ourselves cast in a role of 
either master or slave, in that case would we miss the opportunity to, as Huxley puts it, be reborn into a different world, and instead find ourselves reborn into the same old world, but this time as a ghost or a vampire or a zombie, not with a new relationship to life, but with a dependency upon an old way of being. The film The Matrix, directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski, starring Keanu Reeves and released in 1999. This film, perhaps, shows us something of the dynamics of a resurrection that is not complete. In the film, the protagonist, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, discovers that the world as it appears is an illusion. Human beings are actually the prisoners of intelligent machines, which use us as their power supply extracting energy from us, but at the same time, as we lie asleep, feeding us an illusion of the world, to give us a false sense that we have agency over our lives. Neo is given a choice between two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. The former will cause him to wake up in this actual reality that he has discovered, and the blue pill will simply cause him to forget his discovery so that he can go on slumbering. Of course, he chooses the red pill in a gesture that might be interpreted as a kind of symbolic suicide. By waking up to reality, he is, maybe in a sense, killing himself. Although the film has received great critical acclaim and it has been pointed out how ideas from Gnosticism seem to have made their way into its plot, nevertheless, perhaps there's something fundamentally disappointing about Neo's awakening into reality, which is that when he wakes up, he's still recognisably the same, he's still Keanu Reeves before and after, only now he finds himself in a world where he has lots of robots to fight. The problem with Neo's resurrection or awakening in the Matrix is that afterwards He's still himself, he's still recognisably Keanu Reeves, of course he is. Reeves is the star of the film. There was no way within the Hollywood system that that star persona was going to be altered to a point of unrecognisability. St Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. What seems to be being shown here is that unlike Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, when we're called back to life, we don't look the same. We are changed. After resurrection, the body we shall have is different. There is one thing, writes the anonymous author of Meditations on the Tarot, a specific feature which the Gospel account mentions several times, that the risen Christ was difficult to recognise, that he hardly resembled the Master that the disciples and women knew so well. Thus Mary Magdalena took him to be the gardener. The two disciples on the way to Emmaus only recognised him at the moment that he broke the bread. The disciples did not recognise his appearance by the Sea of Tiberias, and it was only after he had spoken that John, initially alone, recognised him and said to Peter, It is the Lord. The Christ, then, gives us the example of a resurrection that doesn't result in a ghost or a vampire or a zombie. And the distinguishing characteristic of this body that after resurrection is called back to life is that it's unrecognisable. The resurrection body is different from the mortal body. So if we're encountering an analogous situation in everyday life where we've found ourselves killed off but called back to life, unless what we were formerly has indeed truly been utterly killed off and we have become unrecognisable both to others and to ourselves then maybe we should question whether a true and complete resurrection has actually taken place. There's a poem entitled Spring first published in 1921 by Edna St. Vincent Millay and it's a poem that's often held up as being critical or completely dismissive of the very notion of rebirth or resurrection. To what purpose, April, do you return again? Beauty is not enough. You can no longer quiet me with the redness of little leaves opening stickily. I know what I know. The sun is hot on my neck as I observe the spikes of the crocus. The smell of the earth is good. It is apparent that there is no death. But what does that signify? Not only underground are the brains of men eaten by maggots. Life in itself is nothing. An empty cup, 
a flight of uncarpeted stairs. It is not enough that yearly down this hill April comes like an idiot babbling and strewing flowers. It's understandable, I think, if what we hear in this poem is cynicism and an outright rejection of the rejuvenating powers of spring. But whether it's intentional or not, and very possibly, given that line, it is apparent there is no death, it is intentional. What we also hear in this poem is a terrible sense of insufficiency. Beauty is not enough. Life itself is nothing, she writes. Could it be that when we find ourselves coming back to life, it's precisely because we haven't had enough yet? If our experience of the spring were fulfilling and satisfying, then maybe it would be offering us a good moment at which to die rather than to go on striving towards what we can now see is what we really should do.